together was to not only think about the content of the Old Testament, but to think about uh, great themes, what it is we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves. And we've spent time thus far studying the books of Moses and the books of history. Uh, There's an awful lot uh, to be said about that. Uh, One of the things that we often focus on when we're talking about Christian apologetics is the unity of the Bible, uh, the way that 40 writers over 15 to 16 centuries wrote so consistently to uh, ensure God through those men that we have uh, his inspired word. But there's also beauty in the diversity of God's word, especially when we talk about the forms or the genres in which these words have been written. And uh, today, as we think about poetry, I was struck by the uh, fact that this is very different than the books of Moses, where we have those great stories of how God blessed his people in uh, creation and through the Exodus and then gave them a law, and how in the books of history uh, we've already seen uh, great diversity in the way that in the days of Joshua, Judges and Ruth, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, and last week Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we learn a lot about what God's people were experiencing, but we also see the consistency with which God acts on behalf of his people. And so when we step into wisdom literature, uh, there's a bit of a a different way of studying this because uh, with narrative, it's easier perhaps to pin down uh, historical settings and to think about who wrote it, uh, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, to whom they were writing. And some of those questions we can obviously answer in Psalms and Proverbs, but When we read these books, we are encouraged. I would dare say that a lot of us, uh, when we have been celebrating great success in life, have turned to Psalms because in Psalms you see uh, these petitioners pour out their hearts to God and praise when they are celebrating success, and that we've also spent a lot of time in Psalms when we've been in the valley of the shadow of death, when we are lamenting and wondering why uh, things have happened. And so... Uh, Psalms offers us an opportunity to learn how to approach God, uh, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what might be happening in our lives. And then in Proverbs, we have great diversity with regard to this father uh, offering his son advice, at least in the first nine chapters or so, and then the way that these collections of sayings offer us, in a very optimistic way, uh, a picture of how God has ordered his universe and how there are uh, general truths that can be applied as we strive to live life, resolve conflict, seek wisdom, run businesses, keep ourselves pure. Uh, There are a lot of uh, great themes in Proverbs, but of course, it's very difficult to outline. And one of the ways that we've been approaching uh, these books is to outline them, and obviously, because of the length of Psalms and the diversity of these Proverbs, it's going to be difficult to outline both of these books, but we'll try our best to look at these in a way that hopefully will be uh, fruitful and encouraging. We're going to start in just a moment in Psalm 1. If you want to uh, turn there, uh, we'll demonstrate some things about the nature of Psalms from the very first one that just seemed like a good way uh, to begin. I've mentioned uh, a couple of resources that if you're interested in more Uh, you might check out. I'm not endorsing everything any of these resources say other than God's Word. That's the only perfect book we have. But uh, the first of these is a one-volume survey of the Old Testament. We got the title of this class from this book. 
And uh, the outlines that I'm offering in the weeks I teach are coming primarily from Arnold and Byer's book, Encountering the Old Testament. There's also a five-book series on the Old Testament that actually goes by form or genre. Uh, You can see that there's a book on the books of Moses, the books of history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, and it's a more thorough uh, treatment of these books, not really offering commentary, but just helping readers to understand what's going on contextually as we work through these books together. So as we think about Psalms and Proverbs, there are a lot of things we could do with Psalms, but just note as we begin that uh, biblical wisdom is certainly more than book smarts. And it's also more than life experience. I think wisdom perhaps is best defined. It's also personified, lady wisdom, but I think wisdom may be best defined in Proverbs 1 verse 7, where uh, we learn that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, how fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so as we look at these books, these are not just things that were written down by really smart people, Uh, These were things that were written down with God's guidance or collected uh, because they offered godly counsel. And throughout all five of these books that we sometimes call wisdom literature, there's that theme of pursuing wisdom rather than pursuing our um, our own folly, our own foolishness. Uh, In Proverbs, there's a sharp contrast between two women, uh, Lady Wisdom on the one hand, and then, uh, for lack of a better expression, Miss Folly on the other, and how we ought to strive to serve God and walk in the path of wisdom. These books are very diverse, and Lord willing, next Sunday morning, uh, Mark's going to lead us in a study of Job, Ecclesiastes, and I'm sure glad you got the Song of Solomon, by the way, but uh, those are great books, and they offer great counsel. And so as we look at these, we could talk about authorship, but I think in Psalms in particular, it's important to notice Uh, various structures. And we're not going to spend too terribly long on this, but just to note uh, some of the ways that the Psalms, and I think this is by God's design, communicate. uh, One of the ways is through what we sometimes call parallelism. And if you'll notice in Psalm 1, we have three examples of this in six verses. If you look at the very first verse of Psalm 1, Psalm 1 verse 1, you see an example of of repetition that we sometimes call synonymous parallelism. It's just a way of saying the same thing over and over again, whether it's in a positive manner or a negative manner. Sometimes I can be pretty dense, and one of the ways that I'm thankful people have tried to teach me uh, is through repeating again and again what it is I need to hear and what it is I need to do. And so in Psalm 1, just notice how three different ways the same thing is said. Uh, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And even though those are three different activities, walking, standing, and sitting, the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer are a description of the same kind of company that those pursuing God's wisdom ought not keep. And so sometimes the Psalms uh, will be very repetitive. And I think that's one thing that we'll see that's true in worship throughout Scripture. I know sometimes it's easy to maybe poke fun of songs that repeat the same sentiment again and again. 
if that's something you dislike, Psalm 136 is going to be a psalm you're not going to enjoy, where 26 times the expression, the loving, his loving kindness endures forever, is repeated as sort of an uh, antiphonal refrain. As the psalmist is talking about God's story in Israel, uh, you can almost imagine the congregation replying 26 times with this same, his loving kindness endures forever, which is a way of saying it's not just about history, it's about his story. It's about the way that God has acted. Then if you look in verse 3 of Psalm 1, uh, you see an example not only of parallelism, but the way that it's not just repeated here, but it's actually developed more. This is sometimes called synthetic parallelism. And so notice in verse 3, there's this metaphor of a tree, this righteous man pursuing God's wisdom. And this may remind us of a song we sometimes sing. They'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. But then notice that we're not just reading about this metaphor of a tree. It's being unpacked and developed even more when we learn it yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Uh, that last line almost breaking out of the metaphor to take us back to the idea that this is what godly wisdom looks like. And so it's not just that the psalmist, and David writes 73 of the psalms. I know that we often think David wrote all of them. Uh, there are songs or psalms by the sons of Korah, uh, by Asaph, uh, and then about 50 of them are anonymous. Uh, those superscriptions don't tell us much about who wrote it. And by the way, we're not even sure those superscriptions are original uh, to the Psalms, although they're generally reliable. And so um, David's not the only one writing these down. God, through a variety of different writers, is expressing how we, as those who desire to pursue God's wisdom, not just book smarts, not just experience, how we respond in good ways uh, when there are things that happen in our lives that even are unfavorable at times. And then, uh, finally, in verse 6, we have an, exa an example of parallelism, but it's actually saying a positive and, ne and a negative, two opposite antithetical parallelism, this is sometimes called, where in verse 6 we read, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but, there's an important conjunction, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so uh, I use Psalm 1 as an example of something that you can see in almost every psalm. In addition to this, there are metaphors and similes. There is, um, there's animal imagery that's used to represent God or represent people as they struggle. There's also um, human language to describe God, human emotion that's used to describe God. Because here the psalmist is, is pouring out his heart and desiring for us to better understand what it is God desires uh, for us to experience as his people. Uh, acrostics are sometimes hard to see in English because those are sometimes lost in translation. But the most famous example of this in Psalms uh, is Psalm 119. And in most of our uh, translations, we know this is the longest psalm, but uh, when you look at the headers throughout Psalm 119, about every eight verses, there's a header that probably in your Bible will be a Hebrew letter. And what's interesting about this acrostic is the first eight verses all began with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and then the next eight verses began with Bet, the next uh, Hebrew letter, and down we go throughout the whole psalm. And so uh, these were beautiful structures that were not only there for meter and for uh, these being put to music. That's something I think we could say about early church worship based on 
passages like Ephesians 5.19. But this was also perhaps an easy way to remember. Uh, Many of us have used acrostics through the years to try to remember lists or to remember uh, things that we wanted to recall quickly. And so you can just begin to see uh, fairly quickly that these were things that were not only used in the worship of Israel and the early church, but that were an important life, a part of her devotional life. And so uh, Psalms gets quoted in the New Testament more than any other book. Isaiah is a distant second. And especially in the ministry of Jesus, we see him quote the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. I don't think that means that Psalms is the most important book in the Old Testament by any means, but I do uh, think we should make note of the fact that Psalms was central to the life of Israel and the early church, and it still is central to our worship and devotion to our Lord. Uh, Many psalm books will include a scripture index in the back, and not that that's going to exhaust uh, every passage that's alluded to or thought about when these uh, writers are putting our hymns together, but you'll note that many of those use the imagery and language of psalms, which is a natural uh, fit. One more thing, and then we'll quickly survey Psalms and actually get to Proverbs with maybe three or four minutes left. No, I think we could do better than that. But uh, Psalms and Proverbs are both optimistic. And and the reason I think that's important is when you think about wisdom literature as a whole, and I don't want to step on where Mark's going to take us next week in the last three books you see on this slide, but in Psalms and Proverbs, you get the impression, and I think this is true, that God is responsible for creating this world of order where certain behavior is rewarded, certain behavior is punished, and in general, if we live in this fashion, we can expect those results. But there are exceptions to that. And the pessimism uh, of Job, Ecclesiastes, and not really the Song of Songs, but all three of these show exceptions. Job, uh, yeah, life makes sense unless you're suffering. And then... Uh, And even then, if we have a perspective of God making everything good and the reason suffering exists is because of uh, humanity's choice in Genesis 3 or perhaps the choices of other people around us, uh, while that might help us to somewhat understand where we are in the universe and what God desires for us, it certainly challenges this idea that the world makes sense when it's our family that's being impacted by tragedy. The same could be said for Ecclesiastes. I don't think Ecclesiastes is a depressing book. I think Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of, okay, if all we knew were the things that were under the clouds, and today there are a lot of those to be under, right? If all we knew were the things under the sun, what would life be about? Well, what would you have? You would have family, you would have wealth, you would have work, you would have uh, success, laughter, And none of those things bring purpose in life. And that's why when he hits uh, chapter 12, we get that beautiful conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So Ecclesiastes is not saying life isn't worth living. It's saying without God, life has no purpose. And then Song of Solomon, and again, I won't step on this too much, but I don't think Song of Solomon is intended to, to simply describe God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. I think it's specifically talking about uh, monogamous love in a marital context, which in Solomon's case is really difficult to fathom because of what we know about his life. And uh, even though we can make application to God's love, uh, I think it's a book that's about 
sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. And it tells us that when uh, a couple falls in love and are seeking to court one another and be wed together and live a life together, sometimes our behavior just doesn't make sense. And so there are exceptions to what we might see as an orderly, rational way of living life. And I think wisdom literature looks at that big picture and says, okay, whether you're suffering or whether you're struggling or whether you're in in love, whatever the situation, God still reigns and God's still present and God's still good and he can still be counted on even when life doesn't seem to make sense. Okay, so I've already said some things about uh, the superscriptions of the Psalms. If you look through the book of Psalms, a lot of these are going to have a little superscription attached between the header and the first verse of that psalm that will usually say something about who the author is believed to be, uh, what the setting was, maybe the musical context that was ascribed there. Some of those words are really difficult to translate. That's why uh, you'll see some unusual terms and maybe some footnotes where the translators of your particular translation have tried to explain what that might mean. Uh, It is interesting that David writes, as far as one writer, he clearly writes more psalms than anyone else uh, in terms of those that are labeled with 73. Then you have uh, the psalm of Moses, Psalm 90. Uh, You have two psalms by Solomon. You have about 18 psalms by the sons of Korah. Uh, But many of these are anonymous. And so when I'm blessed to teach a class like Interpreting the Bible at Fried Hardeman, Um, I talk about how really there are some different things you look at in Psalms than you might look at in Acts. Because I know Luke wrote Acts, and I know what's happening when Acts is written, and it's narrative, and so it's sort of easy to follow. Uh, But in Psalms, I may not know who wrote it, and I may not know when it was written or what was happening uh, in the time of that author's life. But I know its structure, and I know what it's addressing. And so that's why sometimes in wisdom literature, especially Psalms and Proverbs, we may have to ask some different questions. You also may note that Psalms is divided into five books, and there's been a lot of speculation as to why those five books exist. It's been suggested, well, it's because of scroll size. But if you look at that, um, that doesn't make sense given the way that those are divided up. You've got some really skinny scrolls and some really big scrolls. Uh, My theory, that's all it is, is that each one of those books ends with an outburst of praise, what we sometimes have called doxologies. If you look at the last verse of Psalm 41, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, Psalm 150, they all end in that same expression of praise. And so for whatever reason, maybe it is tied to the form of the book. Maybe it's tied to a tradition we're not aware of, but it's difficult to pin down a thematic reason that the Psalms are divided into five scrolls or five books. Some have said maybe it parallels the books of Moses or something like that. Really, that's all speculation. What we do know is that each of those books ends with an outburst of praise. And throughout Psalms, here's one way I've heard this described, and I wish I knew who to credit this to. Psalms teaches us how to approach God. Proverbs uh, gives us fatherly advice From God. Now, I want to be careful because I believe Psalms are from God as well, but there really is a picture of communication and what discipleship looks like when you compare 
Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 that are not only psalms that talk about creation, but they praise God. And there are psalms that will praise God because of creation, like those. And then there are psalms that praise God because of his role in history. If you want a quick review of the history of Israel, Psalm 78 is a great psalm where the history of Israel is told. And throughout that history, God's praise, just like in Psalm 136, where, uh, like I said, 26 times you read, uh, his loving kindness endures forever. Uh, Then there are psalms that are just frankly hard to read. The most famous uh, psalm of repentance or lament is Psalm 51, which we uh, know because of our hymnal, you know, David and the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 uh, is asking God to forgive him. Create in me a clean heart, O God. But that's just one of many laments, uh, psalms that are uh, pouring out one's heart before God, either as an individual or as a community, because we've sinned. We are in need of restoration. We're in need of grace. Um, Wisdom. This is all a part of wisdom literature. And so even in the very first psalm that we started with, you see a stark contrast between the way of God and the way of the wicked. And I think one place to see continuity between psalms and proverbs, uh, if you have a teenager, you know this pressure. There are several sources of temptation for our young people And in some ways, it's very comparable to what we experienced when we were younger. Uh, In Proverbs, it seems that the father is warning about two primary sources of temptation. Crime activity. It's almost gang activity. Running with the wrong people and allowing those people to impact how we live life and the choices we make. You'll see that a lot in Proverbs. And the other is sexual temptation. Um, And you see that in Psalms as well, how this pressure can easily lead someone to make poor decisions and to have bad associations and to uh, rebel against God. Uh, I know we're not to Proverbs yet, but if you want to see this play out in a way that sounds like it's just telling the story of what happened, you know, yesterday on the streets of a big city, read Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, especially starting in verse 6, where you have this tragic story of a young man who's looking out the window and he sees a woman and by the end of, this, of the proverb, uh, proverb 7, he's destroyed because he allowed lust to lead him rather than the Lord. And so uh, wisdom of, the wisdom of the Lord is being sharply contrasted with the things of this world, which is where I think New Testament writers, uh, with regard to Psalms, other than messianic imagery, you know, what we read in Psalm 22, 1, where Jesus uh, recites that at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, by the way, I think when David said that, he had, he had been forsaken by his enemies, and he felt pressure and lament. But Jesus could then take that and re-signify it in his setting. And that's part of what makes studying psalms uh, so fascinating, is that we know these psalms have a context in the life of David or whoever the writer is, but then when the New Testament writers use that imagery, they have a fuller sense of how that then connects to Jesus or to whatever situation uh, they're describing. In Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul cites Romans 14 and several other psalms as a way of describing how there's none righteous. None are righteous. Uh, So those themes that we see in psalms are still true. And the New Testament writers are able to say, if you want to know about God, read the psalms. If you want to know about people and how rotten we can be, 
Read the Psalms. Uh, if you're on the mountaintop this morning and your family's great and your health is great and you are just, life couldn't be better, Psalms is a great place to go. And if you've never felt so bad and if life is unstable and you're hurting and you don't know where else to turn, Psalms is a great place to go. And I think that's part of why so many of us love the Psalms. You can step from Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament, where we're crying out to God for help, to Psalm 23. And who doesn't love Psalm 23? And I I like to read those together. There's just something about going from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that I think shows us how faithful God is, even when we struggle. Um, And then there's also difficult psalms. Much has been made of imprecatory psalms, these psalms where uh, petitioners ask God to destroy their enemies and sometimes even the children of their enemies. I certainly don't want to dismiss those as just simply metaphorical, but I think what we see there is that God's people can be angry and can cry out for vengeance, much like what we see in Habakkuk or in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where those Christians who have been martyred are under the throne of God crying out for justice. Um, These people who are offering these petitions, although God's speaking through them, are not able to see everything. And so they may ask God to do something like that. And I think they're asking for that because they've been violated, they're angry, they're frustrated. And this says, um, when you doubt, it's not really about doubt being a sin. I don't believe that's true. It's about where that doubt leaves you. It's about where grief takes you. It's about where these struggles help us to go. And Psalms is a faithful guide as we walk through these things. Um, We've talked about praying the Psalms and singing the Psalms and how the Psalms impact not only our corporate worship, but our individual discipleship. And uh, we could take all year and then some and not touch the hem of the garment of what the Psalms have to offer. And I think it's because, much like all of God's Word, there's great consistency with what we learn about God and His faithfulness, but there's also great diversity um, that Romans 12, 15 principle, there are folks today that want to weep. There are folks that want to rejoice. And we as God's people should be ready to do both. And um, the Psalms help us to do both. Help us to walk through those human situations. Let's talk about Proverbs and we'll open this up to talk about it some. Uh, this is a definition that actually came from that Arnold book, um, the Encountering the Old Testament where they define proverb as a succinct and persuasive saying proven true by experience. And uh, I think much has been made about the Proverbs, and I think we sometimes struggle because uh, the Proverbs are generally true, but we might find an exception. The most famous example of that being Proverbs 22, verse 6, which is a verse I've heard a variety of perspectives on. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Is that true? Generally, it it is true, Uh, but the problem is free will and the fact that we might do uh, what we can to help our children make good choices, and they they may grow up and not make those good choices. I don't think that's a guarantee, but I do believe it's true, uh, generally speaking. We see something similar later in Proverbs 6, uh, verses 24 and 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. I think that's certainly true. 
Uh, we want to be peacemakers. We don't want to be uh, quick to anger. But at the same time, I don't think this is saying uh, avoid everybody you know with an anger problem. Uh, that may be very difficult for some of us. But uh, what's being said there is don't allow that association to turn you into someone who is easily angered or bitter. And so I don't want to dismiss Proverbs, but I think everything in Proverbs needs to be read with those competing truths in mind, that this is a contrast between God's wisdom and my wisdom, and God's wisdom is great and mine is not, unless it's conformed to his, transformed by his. And this is also uh, something that is generally true in a rational, orderly setting, but there can be exceptions. And we've already seen demonstrated that uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon all give us illustrations of what an exception can be in light of our suffering or romantic love or finding prosperity and thinking we can find meaning in those things rather than putting our trust in God. Uh, If I'm teaching Proverbs at uh, a camp setting like Mid-South or Horizons, I would say to those young people, if you really want to understand Proverbs, the best place to start is the first seven verses. Because in addition to having the wisdom of God defined in verse 7, which I think is the key verse of this whole book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and instruction. But you also have in verse 1 of Proverbs 1 an introduction that reminds us that the majority of Proverbs was written by Solomon. We'll say more about that in just a minute. But then notice the purpose. What's the purpose of Proverbs? Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Um, We love Proverbs. The difficulty with Proverbs is much like Psalms. They are diverse. They are very difficult to outline. Um, These sometimes, especially after chapter 9, verse 18, they start to read like a daily calendar, where much like the book of James in the New Testament, you're dealing with themes like wealth and equity and justice and purity and the tongue and business. And we might jump around in a way that seems really random, but I think, again, by God's guidance, is offering us a full understanding of the simple reality that discipleship in Israel and discipleship now is not just about what we do in the assembly. It's what we do as the assembly. Uh, It's what we do uh, when no one else is watching. It's what we do when uh, we want on a daily basis to live as God's people. And so in the first nine chapters, again, this section of Proverbs reads like a, like a narrative. In many ways, these are story-like. Um, an example of this would be Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, a well-known proverb, trust in the Lord with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make paths, your, your path straight. That comes in a section Much like, by the way, the first nine chapters repeatedly says, my son, stop and listen, bind these teachings on the tablet of your heart, write these things down. And so in the first nine chapters, Solomon is giving his sons advice. 
God-honoring advice. This is the wisdom of Solomon that he prayed for in 1 Kings 3. Uh, We know he wrote down and collected many proverbs. These are God's words being spoken through Solomon. But when we hit chapter 9, verse 19, which is actually in English Bibles, the first verse of chapter 10, we begin to see that there is more diversity in the latter part of Proverbs. We'll just hit some highlights as we look at this. Um, The reason Solomon is often associated with Proverbs is because in addition to what he says to his son in the first nine chapters, starting in chapter 10, verse 1, we have the Proverbs of Solomon. So why are we differentiating there in the way this is outlined? Because in chapter 10, all the way through the chapter 22, verse 16, we have uh, this collection of Solomon's sayings that are not necessarily going to flow like the narrative we see in the first nine chapters. And it seems that from what follows, we don't know anything about Agur or Lemuel outside of Proverbs. Uh, But we know that God worked through them, and they wrote these lessons down. Uh, These lessons were accepted by Israel as Scripture. They were taught, they were believed, they were understood to be from God. Uh, But the vast majority of Proverbs comes from the hand of Solomon, including what King Hezekiah, you'll see there, 2 Chronicles 29 through 31. Hezekiah was a restorer. Uh, He tried to restore uh, monotheism to Israel and get away from idolatry. Uh, Hezekiah collected some of Solomon's Proverbs. And so uh, just note with me, when you hit Proverbs 22, verse 17, There's a change. Uh, We move from the things that Solomon has collected to this uh, challenge to incline our ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. And what we began to see starting in chapter 22, verse 17 and going all the way through the end of uh, chapter 24 are these short, pithy collections that often involve prohibitions. If you just look down through this, you're going to see a lot of do not. Uh, My son, do not, do not, do not, do not. And these are direct challenges. Uh, The wise one here may be Solomon, but it seems that for whatever reason, the inspired writer begins to speak more in the third person, uh, as if either Solomon is describing himself as the wise one, which would be much like his describing himself as the preacher in Ecclesiastes or someone else. Uh, like Hezekiah in the next section, collecting these sayings. The reason in Proverbs 20 uh, I said that these are numerical sayings is because when you began to look, and I think I may actually have that wrong, it's Proverbs 30, first typo of the day, minus two for me. But uh, in Proverbs 30, you began to see how the words of Agor are tied to numbers. Many of the things that he gives us in this chapter, there are three things that will not be satisfied for, that will say enough. And so uh, one of the ways that this section, the words of Agor, has often been described as uh, numerical. There are a lot of numbers in chapter 30. And finally, there's, of course, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, which actually follows the first nine verses where King Lemuel is talking about uh, truths that he learned from his mother, uh, Proverbs 31, verse 1. And she gives him advice, much like Solomon gives his son uh, earlier in the book. There's something here, I think, to be said for uh, every parent being involved in teaching their children. 
And then, uh, starting in verse 10, we have this beautiful acrostic that describes this woman of virtue and the way that Lemuel, I think, is looking at his mother, but also looking at a woman who's, um, much like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 says, is adornment, uh, is honorable in the eyes of God because her heart desires to please him and to serve him, and she puts those things first. So what do we say about all this? There's a lot to be said, and clearly Psalms or Proverbs could take up a whole quarter of our study at least, but uh, again, we learn so much in these two books about God's faithfulness and his character and his steadfastness, whether we're rejoicing or weeping, and his desire that we pursue wisdom. Uh, We learn that God has acted in our favor, but he desires that we respond to him. There's a lot of theology uh, embedded in these books about what God wants and how he wants us to respond and how it's not just that initial response. Should we talk about baptism? Of course. But let's also talk about discipleship. And these are books that call disciples under the old covenant, of course, to walk in the wisdom of the Lord. For it not just to be about knowing the scriptures, but it to also be about living the scriptures, which we would argue is knowing uh, the scriptures. And we also learn a lot about human beings. And so uh, I take comfort in the fact that 4,000 years ago, people were experiencing what we experience. They were grieving. Uh, They were repenting. They were struggling. But they were also celebrating family. They were rejoicing in God's blessings. And so uh, I've taken comfort through the years in Psalms and Proverbs because it reminds me that I don't, have to, I don't have to put on a front. I don't have to feel or act a certain way other than in holiness, we pray, um, all the time, that it's okay to sometimes be discouraged. Uh, but it's a question of where that takes us. And what we pray is that will take us closer to God's will and that we'll see, even in the midst of that struggle, God's faithfulness, which brings us to where we'll be, Lord willing, next Sunday morning in this class where... However you read these three books that are a bit more pessimistic, you still see God's faithfulness and the blessings that come from relying on him, especially when contrasted with self-reliance. I'd love to talk about retribution and the idea that we can somehow know if we're righteous, we'll get rich. If we're unrighteous, we're going to get sick or something like that. That seems to be what Psalms and Proverbs are suggesting. But I think we'll see that challenged uh, in our study of Job in particular. So uh, looking forward to a great day of worship together. Appreciate so much this time of study we've had this morning.